Welcome back to episode 30 of the Therapy Explained podcast. I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Melanie Lee and Bridger Falkenstein. This is a return to the show for Mel, whom I spoke with in episode 14 about cognitive analytic therapy, and a first appearance for Bridger, although he's well accustomed to the world of podcasting, with his own podcasts, the Notice That podcast, and the Evidence-Based Therapist podcast, both of which I'm a big fan of. Mel and Bridger are here to speak about somatic integration and processing, otherwise known as SIP, a conceptual model developed to help clinicians have a deeper understanding of working with clients. SIP is grounded in attachment and neurodevelopment theory, adaptive information processing, and polyvagal theory, all of which are covered today. There is a lot to unpack with SIP, so if you want to find out more, there are some upcoming free taster webinars for all therapists, psychologists, case managers, health professionals, physiotherapists, occupational therapists, and medics. The first is on Wednesday 15th of June at 7pm UK time and is called Working Somatically in Psychotherapy with another one on Wednesday 13th of July at 7pm UK time this being called Multiplicity of Self in Psychotherapy. To register interest in the free webinars please email info at trustpsychology.co.uk that's info at trustpsychology.co.uk Further full day online training will take place on the 1st of October this year. This is called Introduction to Somatic Integration Processing, How to Unleash Your Inner Therapy Ninja. Hope you enjoy. Hi Mel, hi Bridger, thanks for joining me today. Hello, lovely to be here James. (laughs) Super excited to have this conversation today. I guess we're going off on a little bit of a tangent to what I usually speak about. I usually speak to people about models of therapy, intervention techniques, whereas today we're talking more about a concept to understand what underpins all of those things. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's a great way to start the conversation. And I feel that our field so often is fixated on talking about the what uh, and the like what we're doing. And we lose tracks, in my perspective, of the why and the how. You know, why does all of this make sense? And, and how is this synthesizing all of this research that's come before us? And that's really what SIP was built to do, is to synthesize this and let any modality then become informed by this kind of grounded theory and, and how it can support the interventions and the change you're trying to see in the room. Yeah, so you mentioned SIP. I was going to add to what Bridger said that... Um, the reason that somatic integration processing model was so appealing to me when I first heard about it via Bridger and Melissa and Jen's Notice That podcast was that core problem of integration. Like I'm sure a number of therapists that you've spoken to, James, are not just trained in one model. And you and I spoke together about the kind of the, the, the dynamic duo or the amazing triad of like EMDR plus a kind of cognitive analytic therapy plus a, maybe internal family systems or ego state. But the question then is, well, there's no framework for how you work those together with these amazing techniques. How do you do it in really genuine synthesis as opposed to picking and choosing a technique without any underlying rationale? Yeah, with with high fidelity, I think that's the other the other puzzle piece to this integration because I think there can be such haphazard integration where you're jumping from your EMDR camp of really structured you know interventions here, but then oh we'll jump into the IFS or parts work when it seems like it's coming up. But are you doing that leap with 
thoughtful intention and awareness of how those concepts actually honor one another um, and seek to bring out more of the change you're hoping to see or more of the insight or, you know, whatever your goals might be. Maybe as we speak a little bit more about what SIP is, it'll make a kind of a lot of sense about where they, how that can be like a Rosetta Stone to understand all of these approaches and where do they overlap? How do they I line love up that. So nicely? Hmm. I love that. We talk about SIP as a, it, it literally is a translation, you know, kind of mechanism. So I love talking about it as Rosetta Stone. I've never heard that. <laughs> um, so maybe if uh, either Mel or Bridger want to get us started to kind of a, a intro into SIP and we go from there. Yeah, sure. Um, so I think I've already mentioned that SIP was developed as, you know, sort of a filling the gap in the research of what we saw um, looking at the field of traumatology and what the, what the research had been consistently showing, especially in the decade of the brain and the emergence of neurobiology informed practices, what really brings about change in a person who's experiencing, who has experienced some of the most difficult things uh, imaginable and is still somehow living. You know, how do, how do we bring about change in that, in, in that scenario? Is that even possible? You know, there was still some, some thought early on um, about, you know, it, is this change even really realistic to expect? And can people heal from interpersonal trauma that was so egregious? And so with all of that, the field had kind of come up with, we, you know, we need to reduce symptoms, we need to deal with memory, and we need to deal with this integration of a fragmented self. Like that's, that's kind of standard trauma theory. Um, and all of these different techniques were vying for the most efficacious uh, way of handling that scenario. And in that, we saw immense kind of gaps between these treatment intervention approaches and how we were understanding what mechanisms of change really mattered and how to go about kind of finding their origin in the client's story or in the patient's story. Um, the second piece that I think is foundational to SIP on top of that foundation is, and there's that scaffolding effect that you'll see, I think, in, in all of SIP, but is also the relationship between the therapist and the, and the client or the patient. So not only is this person, this client or patient bringing in their world of experience that got them to where they are now, you can call it adaptive or maladaptive, dysfunctional, functional, whatever you want, but you are as well as the therapist. And there you see an interfacing, what we call, and philosophy calls uh, intersubjective space, where two subjects come into the room and form an entirely new situation. Um, a lot of therapy in our kind of experience is taught very objectively that a therapist is here to treat a client and there are pretty explicit role definitions of what those two members are allowed to say and do and feel and think and what they're not um, but at the end of the day therapy is is more made up than anything else like we're we're agreeing to play these roles um, as two human beings. And so SIP takes a very, I think, um, serious view of the fleshiness of being human, um, that we're, we're really two humans coming together with a very specific and what we feel is sacred purpose to seek out healing um, these deep wounds um, that some of us never have the space to share. 
uh, with another human, let alone contemplate changing or growing from. Yeah. And, and if I could add to that, Bridget, that's so lovely to hear about the intersubjective space, because what SIP has offered um, me personally as a clinician and as a human being, of course, in my personal life and with colleagues, is a deep trust in my instincts that, as Bridger will likely go on to describe as well, some of the underlying theory in brief, the bringing together of the neuroscience, the interpersonal neurobiology that you can then trust to scaffold you standing on the shoulders of giants. You can then be in a room with somebody and have the confidence that what your gut is telling you is worthy of attention and the the shared language around that is wonderful to then be able to zoom in on moment to moment exchanges and have confidence in I know what to do next based on where we are in the model but also have this zooming out of this greater trajectory as Bridger was saying of we're ultimately trying to relieve symptoms, process trauma, memories if possible, and integrate. That's where we're heading for. But moment to moment, the dance between you and I is much more intuitively led and authentic then. So there's a moving away from relying on technique to being able to um, hear what that person needs relationally in any one moment knowing that the technique will come when that relationship feels safe enough. What I gather is so much of that confidence is steeped in the foundations of it. So the, the AIP model, the attachment and neurodevelopment, and the polyvagal theory. And that's what gives you so much confidence to be able to back yourself to make these decisions. Yes. Yeah, with the... With the theoretical pillars of the theory you know we have this concept that we just call the venn diagram because it is a venn diagram it's the overlap of these three very large um fields in themselves that we're bringing together and on the foundation that that venn diagram sits is intersubjectivity so intersubjectivity is found throughout the integration of all of these different theories as well as when it's taken as a whole um if you look at what we laid out as the state of the problem as trauma theory sees it being symptom reduction, dealing with traumatic memory, integration of the self, you see, uh, to me, a very high overlap with the Venn diagram and intersubjectivity, that this system was built very specifically to address and move the therapeutic dyad along uh, that process with dealing with memory being in AIP, the attachment and neurodevelopment really teaches us uh, through relationship how to form and become the person that we are. Um, the somatic psych element shows the honor and wisdom of the body and how all of this has been translated into behavior and sensory motor experience. Um, so to me, that 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 overlap is really is really keen. Like we we have to see that this theory was developed in direct correlation with what the field sees as essential in trauma therapy. I only got it just there, Bridger. I didn't think I'd quite got it up then, but I think I just got it. So the intersubjectivity, because that was something that I suppose was something that I was containing more so in the other concepts. Okay, I don't quite get it, but I think I get it, what you mean now. And 
So intersubjectivity yeah. is so important with those three, with AIP, poly, polyvagal theory and uh, attachment neurodevelopment because it all involves other people, and having other people there to kind of help heal, to help soothe, to help regulate mm-hmm. whether you're a child, whether you're in a therapy room or whether you're just interacting with people. So if it's important there, then why wouldn't it be important as part of the therapy? Absolutely. And there's something in what you're saying, James, that's so truthful isn't it about two humans being in a room together and the 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 struggles I always face as a clinician is I know the past is relevant and I know to some degree I represent some relational other with my clients and they do to me I know the body's relevant I know that we've got two nervous systems that are interacting here and I also know that trauma massively affects our information processing and how memories are stored but then how do you in the room attend to which one of those at any one point in time that's the challenge isn't it do we boo a bit of the past a bit of the memory a bit of the body and so actually as Bridger's saying, to synthesise and say they're all happening all of the time almost takes that pressure off that you can then attune to whatever the, you and the client in the intersubjective space. And I'm waving my hands in front of me because it's the, the soup between what's between you that is actually where the work happens. What you bring and what the client brings in that moment then can help you figure out where you need to go next. Yeah, I want to take another loop uh, on the idea, James, that you kind of just alluded to, which is that the theoretical understanding is really what's going to inform why it makes sense to work in this way. And you just said that what clicked for you was that if, you know, it's so obvious and, and kind of ubiquitous that we as humans are involved relationally, that we don't exist in a vacuum in our, you know, quote unquote, normal lives, why wouldn't it be relevant in therapy? Yes, and like I think SAP takes that to the neurobiological root, which is to say that you learn how to be the person that you are through relationship, whatever has happened to you um, and whatever you have experienced in your own behavior in response to what's happened to you, all of that is forming over time to our emergent mind. So I know this is getting into the weeds a little bit, but as you are here today, decades after being you know in relationship with other humans we learn how to be who we are based on that first relationship so much that's why attachment theory is so essential to understand you have been trying on these different templates throughout your life of how to make sense of yourself and the other in relationship and all of what we in therapy look at as diagnoses or different symptoms or different pathologies or dysfunctions All of those are labels we're putting back onto that human as ways that they've really just tried to secure safe enough for long enough to survive. Um, That's really, to me, another foundational piece of SIP that we don't care much about symptoms as we do strategies. These are ways that that organism is trying to regulate in its felt suspension between am I safe or am I under threat? You know, am I going to die or is this safe enough? Um, that, that that to me is really it's through relationship that we that we traverse that chasm and i think something you touched upon there is uh one thing that you've mentioned previously bridger with sip is that there's a cultural shift there and i would like to come back to that but i think it might be helpful if we could because there's a risk that you can really get into the weeds with those the, the three concepts that underpin sip but i think for anyone listening where this can be quite foreign or even if it's something you've heard a few times i think there's no harm in kind of just going through uh, some of the bullet points with um, AIP polyvagal theory 
and uh, attachment neurodevelopment because it really sets up, it just helps understand everything that you just said. Yeah, sure. Um, well, Mel, I will lean on you as well for sort of this dance, but going between because saying what SIP is in now we're going to try to do it here in just a few minutes by like <laughs> highlighting the, the, the Venn diagram, I, I'm, prone, I'm prone to miss something. So for me, attachment and neurodevelopment really is the place it starts. You know, that's so much of my background is in paying attention to the neurobiology, biopsychology, and how relationships change the brain. And so when we say attachment and neurodevelopment, we're looking at our attachment style, yes, but we have a dimensional perspective of that uh, that's formed throughout the lifespan. Um, so it's not just insecure and secure, it's variations of strategy that are dealing with, am I omitting cognition or am I omitting affect in my body? Do I shut down my feeling in favor of the thought that I have? So very dismissive kind of type, or do my cognitions kind of change at the whim because my affect is so large that I can't seem to really find any regulation or safe touch points. Those are formed in relationship and those have a reciprocal effect on how our physiology develops, which starts this big cycle of experience then changes the brain, which then changes the experience, which then changes the brain. We're on this loop now of, of, you know, the, we're off to the racetrack as we say. Um, uh, and in that, you know, attachment and neurodevelopment really functions around safety and connection. We, we synthesize so much of John Bowlby's work, um, Mary Ainsworth, Patricia Crittenden, like there's just a long, list of references here. Um, but then it also is where neurobiology uh, and affective neuroscience kind of come into the picture. Um, as I said, we learn so much of how to be a human in the first relationship. And that, you know, Daniel Stern and uh, Dan Siegel, uh, Alan Shore, all of these authors that have been working in trying to put together the puzzle piece of the neurobiological human um, that's literature that is so essential to understand uh, if we're talking about the mechanisms of change in psychotherapy. Like, why does it work? Louis Cozzolino is another uh, author on the human, uh, the neuroscience of human relationships that to understand how change happens, to me, we have to have that neurobiological um, foundation, at least, even if it's we're not neurologists or neuroscientists, we still need to be informed about what is happening uh, based on the science that we understand, what is happening in the brain and body, and how is that in relationship with the person's mind, and how is that then in relationship with other people? Um, but Mel, I'm curious what you would say about attachment and neurodevelopment. Yeah, as you're listening, or... Bridger, the, the theories are helping me um, recognize that when you're sitting in a room with somebody then, attachment and neurodevelopmental theories help you recognize that the strategies that the person needed when they were very small well in the womb onwards to relate to others for the core concept of safety will repeat between you they are all there so to have a listening what SIP is wonderful for is you just have these listening ears so when a client will say something or respond to me in a certain way, that gives me information about their past that we can then, in the intersubjective space, invite into discussion if it feels safe to do so. So I, 
there might be other examples if I think of them we can come back to but that's where the attachment and neurodevelopmental lens is wonderful for just helping us recognize that yeah I think an easy example is when you know this is a small example that leads to so much we call these breadcrumbs in SIP like this is just a moment of a breadcrumb and then there's the trail that you see lit up but when you know, so often for me in, especially in early therapeutic relationship, you might be getting into now some of the more uh, emotion filled conversation. And you might see this person, you see the emotion well up and it's almost as if you see them deny it. You see them shut it down and say, I'm sorry, what, what was I saying? My mind just kind of went blank. And I think the normal social you know the social norms of the convention of society is to just go with them on that like to just be like oh yeah what were you saying you're you're talking about something but in in this we see this breadcrumb come up to say that was important whatever just happened and i wonder yes, if it feels and then, safe to name what that was for you yeah sorry bridge i got so excited when you were no, saying yeah, that go then, ahead. this 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 is the moment that SIP gives you permission. So when you notice these breadcrumbs, when the, the clues are always in the room, but when you see it, I think previous therapeutic mod modalities might tell you to analyze it or interpret it, whereas actually you can just talk about it. Everything is talkaboutable. So when someone does that cutting off, as Bridget described, you can be really curious. Ah, oh, I notice that this has happened and invite in that conversation. And if you notice something within your own body or your own cutting off as well, invite that and offer that too. It will always, always go to somewhere very meaningful. Yeah, the inverse, I think, situation uh, where a person may be ping-ponging from topic to topic or their affect is really running away from them. I think in, in so many of, of my own experiences, it's so easy to get swept up in that energy um, to be like, oh, okay, we're really moving through some material now. They just keep, they just come in and they just want to like share all of this stuff. And we went from talking about moms, talking about you know dad, to now we're talking about their boss. We're now talking about their like unsatisfied relationship. This person's really just going. Um, but SIP shows that that's the strategy that that system has found to stay kind of dancing around to trying to avoid the threat. It's really an affect avoidance strategy, but they're fixated on the affect at the same time. Like it's truly uh, a way of naming, like I feel like we just keep going from topic to topic. And I wonder if it feels like you ever find a place to land. And what is that like? Like you actually get to invite that, that space that your body so naturally feels it needs. Like, oh, I just feel really anxious or swept up by this client. Well, I bet that's how that person feels a lot of the time. <laughs> and I bet that's how a lot of people in their life feel a lot of the time. So I wonder if you can make that a subject of conversation and really see if we can find any connection on that and sit deeper into the feeling and know that it's okay to feel like we're out of control and we don't have to dance around in this moment. We can just speak to it. These breadcrumbs, I imagine that they are there in every session. I think you said earlier, Mel, that they're there. Yes, and, uh, always, mm, James. <laughs> there's something about SAP that gives you the opportunity, and I guess not even just SAP, but you know, what underpins it, that highlights that you know how we're feeling, because often there'll be kind of shame, blame, responsibility wrapped up in how it is to feel like that or act like that. It's kind of letting you know that you know none of this is your fault, and you know this is how we are as mammals. We are we're driven towards connection. Yes. We're driven towards safety. And that this is maybe like a way of trying to stay safe. 
and that that's okay and maybe we can talk about that a little bit so it just it and i guess it helps you just size through the shame blame responsibility that can come with that yeah i'm so glad you brought up the the word shame because i think anytime we can speak to it is important um it this way of understanding you know mel you said standing on the shoulders of giants because we have this theoretical synthesis at the base of sip we can just speak to the experience of being a mammalian organism. Yeah, we're humans and we have this big shiny neocortex with this prefrontal cortex that gives us this illusion of uh, executive function, but we're really more consumed with the past than we ever are in the present. Um, and that's what I think gets us into the memory work. You know, Ed Tronic is a researcher that, that famously said, all we are is memory. And I love that that phrase because it, he's talking about multiple layers of meaning neurobiologically, but in memory is is important to hold on to, not because our brains are organized like photo albums, but because we are an organism that is specifically evolved to to handle a threatening situation and learn from it so that in future encounters of that same situation, we can solve it more effectively and efficiently. That's what our physiology is wired to do evolutionarily. So we don't hold on to memory just because we like having photo albums. We hold on to memory because we believe it keeps us safe. That's where we get off track though. And that's where I think the AIP and the, the larger memory sphere really comes to meaning because we hold on to the past as it shapes the present and ultimately shapes the future. And as a clinician, that's so helpful to understand that the body is responding in a way that is seeking safety and seeking prediction for the future. So when it, when things are out of a client's awareness, just to be aware of that as a clinician then affects your next discussion point or move because you can be aware just by the physiology of what's happening in the room that this is not a safe moment for the client. So we can be deeply respectful of all of that or if, know as Bridger was saying that the neurocortex is the preferred mode the amount of time people will start sentences when you ask a question about emotion with well I think is just a lovely breadcrumb every time you hear I think go right we're in that intellectualizing place right now because that must be safe what I've just asked is potentially triggering and what a wonderful clue breadcrumb and it when you get with a really good relationship with your client you can name that so explicitly oh look we're thinking again i wonder what it would be like to go inside something has shifted and you've done such a, a fantastic job there of kind of summarizing the the um polyvagal theory to well the aspects of it being human in connecting with, with humanity and um attachment and neurodevelopment if we could maybe just touch upon the aip a little bit because i guess that's a crucial part of the healing and what you mean by that and how that plays a role in SIP. Yeah. So again, memory reconsolidation is really the larger conversation that we're having here. And um, we have multiple other podcasts that you can go deep dive into if you want to listen to that. But, um, you know, with uh, adaptive information processing, that's, that's the theoretical foundation for EMDR of why it makes sense to focus on past memories and connect them directly to the dysfunction we're experiencing in the present. So if we're, if we're on the same page that the past informs the present, which shapes the future, then it makes sense that 
when we go back or, or perhaps starting in the present, when we know that we're experiencing something distressing, that those have roots that are based in times earlier than now. So if we, if we float back, which is a, a technique in EMDR that I really uh, appreciate even just as a metaphor, but if we float back on the origin of this distress, we'll find very meaningful memory um, that was organized at the time in a way that didn't make sense for future use, but it wasn't made that way. Like if it goes back to, you know, I was yelled at for asking to go to the bathroom when I was a little kid. And we made meaning of that at the time as I guess my needs to go to the bathroom are not okay and they could upset somebody else. That was a way of, of storing the information that led to a a smaller space that we were allowed to be ourselves. Like our subjective experience was limited at that point. We didn't have the ability or the relational capacity to check in and say, it feels like you're yelling at me because I have to go to the bathroom when really maybe that person was, was getting upset because of a schedule or because of expectations that they felt they had and why they couldn't let you go to the bathroom. It wasn't about you and the needs that you have. But we get off track in that place because we're built neurobiologically as small humans to look to older humans to learn how to regulate. Um, so that's where, to me, just one example of going back in time um, really helps us understand the, the present and how we got here. That de-shames the client's presentation. That also helps us understand what other breadcrumbs might be there because we see that, wow, this memory had a big effect on you. Like from there on, you stopped sharing your internal experience with that person. And then that generalized to another human. And then over time, you stopped sharing your internal experience with anyone. And now you're wondering why you're upset in relationships. And what a wonderful example of where the, the SIP is truly integrative. So if a memory such as that is uncovered then moments where those scenarios may repeat in therapy. So I can think of a recent example where a client wanted to change the regular time slot of our meetings, but previously would have never dared come forward to ask for something like that, what was able to articulate. And we were able to name that as a, from within the attachment lens on as such a transformative experience. I was absolutely delighted that he risked coming to me with that request. It seems some of these things so subtle but when you've got the meaningful understanding of this underlying formulation and conceptualization that for him in this kind of context that is a highly risky thing to not follow his usual strategy of not saying it you've then got multiple choices of how you resolve that transformational experience through the attachment and the the, the, the therapeutic relationship via polyvagal in terms of tuning into how that feels in the body or via a processing by EMDR or an IFS conversation. Truly integrative. Yeah, and you see that the, the reason the fear might be there to name that internal experience or desire is that it could, in their lived experience, either highly stress or completely terminate the relational safety that you have uh, in, that, in, in that context. Um, which, of course, saying it on the face of it, like, no, people change their appointment times all the time. Like, that's completely okay. That's actually part of what I want you to tell me is when you want to meet. But in their internal lived experience and their early emotional learnings, that is associated with this person could reject me. Absolutely. Or could be upset yeah. with me. 
Um, and so really making that link explicit is what leads to that, you know, higher affect tolerance. We're going to regulate into uh, more capacity along our window of tolerance. Like all of this is in line with our goal to reduce symptoms, deal with memory and integrate the self. Oh, that's so beautiful, Bridger, because absolutely the, the hope would be now is because that conversation went okay in the therapy as a practice conversation, really. And that, that experience was now transformed. That previous kind of pro-symptom belief is now like lessened. But of course, what happens yeah. next is my client goes and has a difficult conversation with his wife or a difficult conversation with another friend. And there's the integration outside of the therapy room. It's That's just, the disconfirming experience. Yeah, yeah, it's so important to celebrate those moments. They're so significant for clients. Does that mean that SIP, because I guess my understanding of AIP is very much just from an EMDR perspective where it's about kind of acti- activating a, a memory network, activating a memory and adding left-right brain activation and that that helps this innate ability to kind of heal, whether it's memory con- reconsolidation that's underlying um, theory. And is that kind of what that's mimicking in those instances where someone has this kind of corrective, positively uh, adaptive experience? To me, it's really just deepening that, you know, uh, hearing you read that back, that sounds like EMDR training, like that's what Mm. you're told. Mm. But to me, SIP and the way we synthesize theory really helps you see why all of that makes sense. Mm. You know, it digs down into, well, yeah, of course, activating a previously stored emotional learning in the context of safety with these resources and integration across the hemispheres, of course, that's going to (laughs) bring relief and and you know, uh, release and catharsis and getting into that, um, disconfirming experience where this can be generalized into your life and you can actually become happier. Like, of course it's going to do that. You're, you're, you figured out the puzzle that is the human of how we hold on to memory, why we do that and how to unlock it and reprocess it in a way that actually leads to a different understanding of self and other, which means we're going to be more in tune with our body and our relationships like it just explains so much of why AIP even works. We need to sign up for the AIP or SIP uh, tester even <laughs> to find out a little bit more about yes. that. Just wondering if it might be helpful to talk a little bit about ego states because I know that that's been brought up and I, I, I'm i pretty sure I've seen IFS being brought up. I think maybe even on the, the Beyond Healing Center uh, website. Uh, yeah. Bridger, where does that fit into this model? Yeah, so SIP is a training that's currently broken up over six days so we have one training the sip one training which is three days and then there's some time for consultation and integration and then there's the sip2 training uh, which gets into the development of the self so uh, we joked that sip1 is really just a long preface to get to sip2 um, because we want to jump in and therapy with you know your relationship with self Mm. and looking at your relationships with other people so self and other but we miss all of the biology, all of the the fleshiness of being human when we do that. And so we wanted to start very intentionally with, here's how to understand what it means to be a mammalian organism. So we look at the attachment neurodevelopment, we look at the somatic piece, and we look at memory inside the context of intersubjectivity. Once we have a working understanding of that, we can get into the emergence of self. So as I P2, kind of circles back to the fundamental components of SIP one, but with this new lens on top. So we use all of these new, all of these images that we developed in SIP one, all of these ways of understanding the emergence of uh, the organism. And now we're looking at how does the self come to be and how does it function in relationship? 
So ego states and internal family systems and all of these different um, dissociation-based kind of fragmentation theories are about structural dissociation, like how the self fragments in the face of overwhelming affect. Um, you're going to find within that a very similar problem to what we initially encountered in SIP-1 with the, field, with the field being so proliferated with different language, nobody really translating across them. Like there was no Rosetta Stone for ego state work either, um, or for parts work or for internal family systems, what have you. So that's really where we turned our attention in SIP-2 to say, okay, we're going to talk about them as self-states which is integrating all of parts, work, theory, structural dissociation, whatever you're looking at, internal family systems, et cetera, to say that, yeah, it makes sense that a human does this because we find that discrete compartmentalizations of personality are actually more adaptive evolutionary, evolutionarily to lead to safe enough for long enough to survive. So these different parts get fragmented off because they were associated with adaptive survival strategies in the face of that overwhelming affect. Those don't just go away if they were deemed successful, they now become a part of the self, but it's not just so much an integrated, fluid communicating self. Um, now, I, I'm curious to hear what you're thinking as <laughs> I'm talking and, and what else you want to um, add. Thanks, Bridger. And um I'm aware that I'm recently trained at level one IFS as well. So it's, it's fresh in my head. And I know you've got an interest in it too, James. What I find SIP is capable of doing that I've never encountered before with another model that is trying to bring a synthesis together in, an, in a kind of really um, way with a lot of integrity is the individual approaches and techniques of each of these modalities is able to be layered on top of the visual representation so in time your listeners might be able to access the the diagram that SIP takes from the initial Venn diagram of the overlapping circles of the different lenses of AIP polyvagal and attachment and neurodevelopment into this core triangle which SIP can then be zoomed into and Again, it takes the, the, the detailed training to go into this at different levels. But within that triangle and within its safety looping and layers of mammalian, reptilian and kind of prefrontal cortex levels that the brain structure we know ana anatomically is, you can think about where like the parts work comes in it's completely congruent like every single approach that we've learned about from a from my psychology training fits into this we understand why now if you go at a very cognitive approach and do a lot of thinking or get people to change the way they think before having core safety in the body there's a reason why that doesn't work there's a reason why we need to build up these levels and attend to both the right and the left hemisphere in a and come back to core safety so i find when i look at the core sip triangle i can see where the firefighters the managers the exiles are to me core self is the entire triangle and the access yes. back to core safety being the the interlocking uh, i'm doing a line <laughs> vertical line in my in front of my face because the, there's something about 
these different models have some diff- different philosophies and they will take us off into different places. But there's some fundamental truths that come across all of these different approaches that SIP just is able to capture in a really elegant, concise way. So I don't see the conflict at times. There's a, there's a safety in, 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 in bringing them all together, which is true integration. I mean, when IFS yeah. has its end goal, it's when all parts are in harmony within, within a self-led system. It just is absolutely fitting. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where I think SIP is not going to have a problem with any existing theory because it's integrated. Yes. We, we validate the existence of theory as that is a picture or a side of this utterly complex diamond that we're all looking at. So it's going to say, okay, this is new information. How does this make sense with the existing understanding that we have? Um, ego state work, you know, within SIP two, we talk about the intrapsychic and the intersubjective experience. So the internal experience of the human, and then that traversing into the intersubjective or interpersonal experience of the human. Parts work to me helps us understand how we go through these different environments that we're a part of and the different relationships, the different, uh, you know, threat management or stress mitigation techniques or strategies that we've learned over the course of our life. It helps us understand that there is a world of experience going on within each human being. And what shows up in the interpersonal is just a fragment. Like it's just a piece Mm. of what's going on inside. And so as we go throughout life and, and especially in a therapeutic context, when we have the opportunity to actually survey what really is that landscape internally um you're you're going to find parts in every single human that's that's how we learn how to again regulate and find safe enough for long enough to survive it normalizes structural dissociation it de-shames the experience of of fragmenting as we did of course you did that you almost died in that situation it was a good thing that your system was able to find this back tour to fragment away this part of you that went through that because without that you might not have been here like you might not be here now that's so it really to me sorry bridger i was just gonna add that's one of the most authentic um values of sip is it's de-shaming validating connecting sense whatever someone discusses, whatever they're doing in the room with you has a very important purpose. And it's so wonderful as a clinician to be very deeply appreciative of that. And some of the therapeutic Mm -hmm. models like IFS and like CAT speak to why it's so important to do that. Whereas there's a when you talked about cultural shift, James, earlier, I think that's potentially something that I feel very passionate about, that there's a lot of language out there in the medical settings and other mental health settings, which are about there's something wrong with you or there's something we need to fix, there's something that you're dysfunctional. And actually, everyone is doing an absolutely amazing job at surviving their life. And you're giving people choices through therapy. You're not fixing them. You're not changing them. You're actually helping them develop trust in their own internal relationships through an experience with another. I just It just fits with a kind of deeper humanity philosophy. It means we can take all of these ideas into our personal lives as well. 
there's so many kind of questions. I've had about 10 questions pop up into my mind. I'm going to try between questions and thoughts. Um, but I, it does, and I'm not really sure because sometimes I look at things from an Irish perspective um, because I live in Ireland. I'm from Ireland and I'm not really sure where we're at with things. But like it, to me, it feels like um, trauma-informed therapy, trauma therapy. It's like the, the new wave of therapy. You know, things kind of come and change and maybe in the past it was a bit behavioral or it was cognitive. And this seems like to be the new wave. It seems to be to be marching on and um, what SAP appears to do from um, from what you've said, it's it's almost like the blind men, the elef elephant parable where we're looking at the same thing but from different perspectives. Mm. SIP is trying to say that, look, we can harmonise all of these yes. things. Because sometimes it yes. almost feels like there's a, a xenophobia amongst therapy <laughs> backgrounds where you're in a bit of a bubble because I worked That's in exactly a purely right. CBT service and I felt like it felt like it's the, the football team that you support or your country. There's almost a, a real attachment yeah. to it. But then, um, you know, when you look at these different therapies, like uh, I know I am and yourself, Armel, you can kind of see that, yeah, it's, you can take a little bit from here, a little bit from there. And the cultural shift, like in Ireland, I get so many patients that come because their doctor said that they should try CBT because in the UK and Ireland, CBT is, and it's, I find it helpful for some people, not for everyone, but it's really pushed down people's throats. It's really well advertised. But, you know, it, it, and it's, it's a little bit too cognitive heavy at times. And although I, and I really push for the experiential side of things, like whether it's a, some form of exposure or trying to, trying to integrate it so it's just not cognitive. But that's a cultural shift, trying to move on to say, look, it's not just about correcting our thoughts or self-care, that it's much deeper than that. And this is yes. what, this is, it's SIP is all in with that. Yeah, and you can't do it by yourself. <laughs> like, that's that's the other piece, like, a cognitive book, like you, you could just, you know, have these, you know, track your thoughts and look at the behaviors that come from it. And let's see if we can change that with more mindfulness or whatever different CBT techniques we're going to add in. But in that SIP really embraces this to me, what's been fundamental to psychotherapy since the very beginning that you cannot change in yourself. You have no reason to do that. We are a, a system that's built on congruence within ourselves. So if we're going to go through the contemplation of change, we have to have good reason to do so. Uh, you can't think your way into emotional state shifting change. Uh, that's that's long lasting. And that's where uh, the SIP triangle diagrammatic representation that, that Beyond Healing have come up with is just so beautiful. Because if you take the triangle and flip it, so that the, the apex is at the bottom, which is where the cognitive is represented, you can see that that's just basically unsteady. You're going to get okay with someone who's got a, a firm base within themselves, mm -hmm. but someone who's wobbly, it's never going to work. And it's it, it just, it makes so much sense, but yeah. that's based on the theory. So it explains genuine human behavior and why our attempts when we then come from a less intricative point of view and throw techniques at people which we've all been been trained to do at different points in time are not going to hold the person because you you are then the objectified therapist supplying something to an objectified client and that's not intersubjectivity yes. yeah and I, I know we're getting close on time but there's one thing that I wanted to to note on that which James you brought up that it is sort of like this um you know, sports mentality of I have my team and I'm going to support my team and I, I'm adversarial towards your other team. So sometimes SIP can come across quite adversarial because we're talking about, no, we all play sports. Like we need to be together because we all play sports. Um, but I don't want 
the message to be that you have to leave what you're doing to come do SIP, SIP is coming to you. Like SIP wants to support you in your craft and in your therapeutic modality, however you function. I think there are going to be some learning curves for people that are strictly cognitive, that only want top-down thinking-oriented therapies, but that is still meaningful because they're seeing change. We wouldn't be doing it if we weren't seeing change. Um, So SAP really comes to join you on your team rather than saying you have to abandon your team and and stop playing that way, come over here. Um, I think that any theory or case conceptualization model that comes out has to contend with that reality because we don't need another thing to do. We have a we have hundreds of quote unquote evidence based therapies at this point. Um, we don't need another one. What we need is an understanding of why they all make sense together, mm. and that's what I feel SIP mm. does quite well. Um, I'm just that's uh, beautiful, Bridger. I'm just aware of time, and I'm kind of thinking because there's a couple of questions that are coming up for me, and like say one is because you know it sounds like it's um, uh, maybe a more effective way to approach therapy. Maybe you can choose what to to work on or maybe helps you prioritize certain things better so one kind of one part of me wants to kind of ask about that because that helps everyone it helps therapists it helps the the client it helps um cost you know cost is a serious barrier to therapy so that's kind of one question i wanted to ask and another one is um is this open to clinicians or also clients because just as much as sip1 is like a it sets you up to understand sip2 i feel like this would set people up to understand Mm -hmm what maybe they should be looking for in therapy potentially so there are kind of two threads yeah. i was thinking of going down but i'm aware of time you might need to get away and um, you might be a bit exhausted because well, you know this is like I, tack, this is thin stuff i wonder so for me on that last part like i'm more energized than you could imagine <laughs> like to me talking <laughs> about this stuff like i love it so so much but i wonder if just in closing mel you wanted to talk about uh, the taster. I would love to have another conversation if your fans would be okay with us coming back. Um, I understand that this podcast is for the people as well, so I want to honor that. But um, you know, the the idea about SIP and really what the theory is being applicable to clinicians and and clients, just humans in general. I think that's exactly right. We have different formats of the training that are geared towards these people. Uh, all across the spectrum. So SIP is for more of a clinical intervention approach, but we have a trauma-informed care training that synthesizes all of this material in very uh, easily accessible language that's more geared towards the just person walking down the street. The tagline for that training is for anyone with a nervous system, um, <laughs> which is kind of a funny joke because that's every human if they're, if they're functioning here. So the trauma-informed care training is really where we teach um, our basic model of recognize, understand, attune, and co-regulate. And that's that teaching that bottom-up way of regulating in uh, relationship. So we have many resources at Beyond for people all across the spectrum. I'm not sure if you want to just talk a little bit about the upcoming workshop. Yes, that would be really great, James. Thank you. So um, this started with kind of our... um, building relationship between beyond healing and their community of reaching out to spread the word about sip and because of the the professional and personal impact um i've reached out to the team and we've spoken for the last year together about what the next stages are in terms of 
building community around these ideas. As Bridget said, these are many, many kind of conversations to be had. So we are here to invite everybody. And I think all parts are welcome. All humans are welcome. We've all got nervous systems. We all Mm -hmm. can access therapy or help each other at different points in time with this understanding. So in, in the spirit of helping people that may have no concept to some of these ideas before now or have pieces of it but are less familiar, we're offering some one-hour taster webinars which are completely free to attend with the, with the idea of building this dialogue around SIP so that this common language can, can become part of a wider discussion. And because the, the team at Beyond Healing have the full SIP package in terms of the level one, level two, in the three and six days, and then their longer online program too, we wondered about whether people would want a one-day sort of introductory day. So we're holding that on the 1st of October this year. So Bridger and I co-facilitating a one-day online um, full-day training that people can get information on via um the info at trustpsychology.co.uk initially and also the community that Bridger is building with the team in the Beyond Healing community, um, which we can give details of or put a link in your podcast, James. But just for initial dates, those two free one-hour webinars are going to be on Wednesday, the 15th of June at 7pm UK time with a Zoom link that people can get a hold of if they come via Bridger or myself and a second day on the 13th of July which is also a Wednesday evening at seven o'clock just a one hour when we're going to be looking at theory and clinical examples so there'll be opportunity to ask questions and hear about a particular case that we've applied this to um yeah we'll have those recorded as well so if if people can't you know come at that time but are very interested in the ideas those recordings will be available on Beyond Healing Community and we'll have the link to share as well so I just wanted to add that part yeah thank you absolutely because all the recordings can be available but we'll also if there's a uh, an interest in more case examples or more q a discussions we can record further zooms and pipe people along to those webinars too and this is not a one-off this will be a continuing thing into next year as well so people have the opportunity there's so much excitement about how you can apply these ideas to physical health and chronic pain and all sorts of ideas so because SIP covers a lot of different topics in, in terms of the, the, the deeper synthesis, our first webinar is going to particularly focus on som- somatic psychology, so working somatically in psychotherapy. And then that's the June one, 15th of June. And then the July one will look at multiplicity of self. So just giving these little tasters of what's to come either in a full one day and then in the full program through Beyond Healing. Thanks for that, Mel. Thanks for that, Bridger. That was extremely enlightening, uh, very exciting, especially from a therapist, a clinician's background. You know, it just seems like, gosh, this could yeah. be so helpful. It is. <laughs> <laughs> I've been working this way for the last year with all of my clients, and it's so satisfying to finally feel as a clinician, you've got the confidence to do what needs to be done authentically. It's so lovely. Um, but there's a lot to integrate, so I'm going to go in try and <laughs> let some of that uh, sink in. Um, but thanks a million for your, all your time today. You're so eloquent and articulate. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks for the invite, James.